I'm Buzz Knight, the host of Taking a Walk, Music History on Foot. Follow us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, iHeart, CastBox, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also head to TakingAWalk.com and you can listen to all episodes. You can check out transcripts. You can leave us suggestions, comments as well. Maybe you could even suggest someone you think should be on Taking a Walk. Today, our special guest is singer-songwriter extraordinaire, Jimmy Webb. So much of Jimmy's work is music history. The list of Jimmy Webb's accomplishments is the stuff legends are made of. Rolling Stone magazine listed him as one of the top 50 songwriters of all time. Hits like Wichita Lineman, recorded certainly by Glenn Campbell, but even recorded by Guns N' Roses. The work that Jimmy did with The Fifth Dimension, Up, Up, and Away. And we can go on and on, and we will go on and on with Jimmy Webb, who's playing at the City Winery in Boston on April 6th, 2023. Well, Jimmy Webb, it is uh, so great to have you on Taking a Walk, even though it's virtual. So uh, we can sort of imagine walking uh, along the beach or something, but uh, thanks for being on. Oh, yeah, it would be a beautiful day for a walk, and we could go right down here to this beach not far from my house. Uh, I can pretend that. Perfect. So take us back to that moment of your first public appearance as a performer playing in your father's Baptist church. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, my mother had given me piano lessons since age six, and um, her goal for me, her dream really, was for me to be the pianist at the First Baptist Church in um, El Dorado, Oklahoma, uh, where my father was a Baptist minister, full-on Southern Baptist ordained minister. And uh, I think I finally, uh, you know, after a lot of cajoling and a lot of push, push and pull between mother and son, I finally made it to the church piano bench you know, then I think I would have been about 11, 10, 10 or 11. And then um, I, I remember also they had an organ there, so I began to play a little bit of organ. I also accompanied my father on these evangelical journeys in the summertime, revival meetings and what have you. I played weddings. I played funerals. I, I played uh, parties. Of course, you know, Christian non-dancing parties because, you know, we weren't allowed to dance in the Baptist church, uh, which which reminds me of a Glenn Campbell story. I have to tell you just quickly, okay? Sure. He said to me one time, he said, Jimmy, he said, do you know why Baptists don't make love standing up? And I said, no, Glenn, I don't. He said, it's because they're afraid people will think they're dancing. <laughs> so, <laughs> dancing was a real big no-no. And a, and, a, and a theme that, you know, a thread we could follow because I was never comfortable with confining myself to church music. So you discovered songwriting really as a teenager, is that correct? I wrote, I wrote a song called Someone Else when I was 12 years old and we had moved it to Oklahoma City. It was a very disturbing time in my life because I had a, an agrarian childhood. I was always on the farm, always around animals working in the fields. I mean, we did hard, hard manual labor. I don't I mean, we weren't slaves, but in a way we were because my grandfather was very stern. And I remember my first cotton 
picking adventure. Uh, my grandma made me a sack when I was eight years old. I was picking cotton. So I would sneak out uh, when I was when I was 12, 13, 14. I, I would go to the sock hop at school, which, where I was definitely not supposed to be. Okay, I wrote a song called uh, uh, It's Someone Else, and believe it or not, took some 25 years later, Artie Garfunkel recorded that song that I wrote when I was 12 years old. So I had a I had a grip on it at from a very early age. I I, I sort of knew what the mechanics of songwriting were about just instinctively. And I had a great teacher in Oklahoma City named Susan Goddard, who um, really helped me work out improvisational stuff, which is what jazz musicians do all the time. They just improvise. And, and in a way, improvis improvisation is the bridge to creativity. That's a tool that you use to create your own melodies and your own chord patterns. So you took off to L.A., and your first job was transcribing other people's songs, right? Well, um, people say, oh, can you, can you write music? And I always say, well, you know, if you can read music, you can write music. I mean, that, that's the end of that argument. You know, I mean, once I realized that I could pick up five or ten bucks you know, to sit down and transcribe, that is to listen to someone else's song and write it down in, in musical language, which I was, uh, you know, was uh, like falling off a log for me at that point. I was I was 16, 16, 17 years old. I have my ears have always been my guide. And so I was using my ears to make not a lot of money, but to get by. And I was on my own. I had no no visual means of support. I was outside my family. And if someone asked me what I what I was doing or what's your work or what's your life, what, you know, have you, have you got a job or something? I said, yeah, I'm a professional songwriter. You know, I can't explain to you why I thought of myself that way. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And and I was doing it. I was writing songs every day. So. Then this little song, uh, by the time I get to Phoenix, uh, pops out of your head. And that really opened a few doors uh, in your career, didn't it? Well, by the time I get to Phoenix, I wrote my first uh, my first real gig in uh, L.A. was I was a contract writer at Motown Records. And uh, actually, their publishing arm is called Joe Bet. So I was signed to Joe Bet, and they used to pay me on a piecemeal basis. I would bring in a song. And if they liked it, they would give me 50 bucks. It was during that period that I wrote By the Time I Get to Phoenix. I actually wrote it for Paul Peterson, who you may recall was on the Donna Reed show. He was a Motown artist. And I was the only white writer in the office. And so uh, the white, I don't want to get off in a cultural thing here, and this is not cultural at all. They were so wonderful to me, Motown. And without Motown, I wouldn't, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. They were just so fantastic to me. But I would get all the crossovers. I would get in 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 a to put put it plainly, they would have me write for all the white artists. There were there were there were, Tony Martin they had signed, who used to be a huge musical star with MGM. Tony Martin, I wrote for, and and Paul Peterson, I wrote by the time I get to Phoenix for, and he didn't like it. 
And so it ended up on the shelf somewhere. Now, because this is a pretty good story, you cut to about two years later, and I'm moving, I'm leaving Motown, and I'm going over to Johnny Rivers Music. And when I left Motown, they said, oh, all these songs, you can have all these songs back because we're never going to cut them. We don't think that they're that they're appropriate for Motown. And it was a wonderful thing for them to do. They let me walk with my publishing. And one of the songs they gave me was By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Another one was Up, Up and Away. And another one was Didn't We, uh, which, you know, is a, is almost almost considered to be a great American songbook number. So they, they, they gave me a whole bunch of hit songs, and I went over to Johnny Rivers Music, and that's where I met the Fifth Dimension and, and sort of became their pianist, but kind of their music, musical director. And, of course, eventually they cut up, up, and away. Well, all those songs that Motown gave me, they were all hits, every, every single one of them. You know, and I had written them... At a very young age, you know, I was in a very, very fertile period. You know, I'd write maybe two or three songs a week, you know, just without even trying. I wish I could do that now, but I can't. It blows me away. Yeah, the uh, amount of work that was uh, being churned out and the brilliance of it and the fact that you were so young, but yet what you were writing about seemed like you had lived a longer life. Well, that is uh, that is not really a paradox in in my view because, and I stated this you know very clearly in my in my first book, which I wrote about songwriting called Tunesmith. It's my belief that when you're when you're when you're in your teens and early twenties, that's when you're 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 like unexposed film. You're like completely blank canvas that has not been utilized. Uh, at all, and particularly your your emotional reactions, they're all fresh. I mean, you're never going to be as in love at 35 or 40 years of age as you were at 17. I mean, love is like this huge, it preempts everything in your life. You know, I mean, I, I go back and I read my lyrics then, and they're all about how I would rather die. I would rather die than 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 lose this, you know, uh, I'm 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 even embarrassed. Some of those lyrics like really embarrass me to death because I was so absolutely, you know, gobsmacked by some well one or two girls in particular that I that I wrote a lot of songs for. Uh, romance was a great vehicle for me, and it provided me with a lot of raw material because I wasn't very successful at it. Do you remember the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Yes, I do. Um, I remember one day I was, um, I didn't know that Johnny Rivers, who I, I owe a great deal to, he was my boss at Soul City at Johnny Rivers Music. And he was an old friend of Glenn Campbell's. They had made a record called The Long Black Veil at Mercury Records some years before. And Johnny had said, this guy, you know, he ought to be a star because he can play, he can sing, he can do everything. You know, I heard uh, Glenn one time play Bonaparte's Retreat through his nose, okay? <laughs> um, so he really was a talented guy. And so uh, Johnny had recorded by the time I get to Phoenix, and he had Glenn come over, and he played it for him, and he said, 
I haven't I haven't put this out as a single to you and Al speaking of Al the Lord. You guys want to put this out? They were both sitting there, and they both said, "I don't get it. Why are you giving us this song? This is probably a hit." And he said, "It's a it's a great line." He said, "Well, guys," he said, "you can only have one number one record at a time." <laughs> and at the time, he was he had a number one record with a song he had written called "Poor Side of Town." which I still think is one of the best songs I ever heard. So he was an inspiration to me, and he was a conduit to Glenn. Now, one day I'm driving down Santa Ana Freeway, and the radio comes on. I, I knew nothing about any of this. I didn't know anything about Glenn Campbell except that I had, since age 14, since I heard his first record, I said, I want to write songs for that guy. So I, I always in the back of my mind was one of these days I'm going to get a song with Glenn Campbell. So now I'm driving down the, the road and all of a sudden I hear Glenn Campbell singing by the time he gets to Phoenix, which was a kind of a, an epiphany that almost caused like an 80 car smash up because I was trying to get off of the road and park my car and, and, and control myself because the first time that happens to you, it's indelible. It's this, it's this wild moment when you, I mean, literally all your dreams come true. And it, it's a very prosaic afternoon. You're driving an old Volkswagen and you're going down to Newport Beach to see some fraternity boys and, and drink some beer. And all of a sudden there's your song on the radio and it seems unreal. It seems like you're outside your body watching yourself listening to your song on the radio. That's the only way I can describe it. Now, I felt the same way when I heard Mr. Sinatra sing one of my songs on the radio. I heard that, that voice singing my song, and luckily I was on a back road that day, and I, I just pulled over and I listened to this wonderful Don Costa arrangement. And I thought, what a lucky, lucky guy I am. All those prayers out in the middle of the field, out in the middle of the cotton patch, praying, you know, that one day I would be able to have my music sung by real recording artists. It all became real. I can't, I, I can't explain how that feels. Even as I'm sitting here today, it, it was such a powerful fantasy. And to actually watch it come true when I was... 18, 19 years old, and Artie Garfunkel was recording one, one of my songs, and Tony Bennett, Barbara Streisand cut, cut a song of mine called Little Tin Soldier, which was a very, very early war, war protest song. And uh, to hear these voices that I had known all my life chiming in with my lyrics, I, I, I think that words fail me, and that's a very unusual thing for me to say. I'm <laughs> but I can't quite get that one into words. It's uh, it's it's a transcendent feeling. I, I and I hope this doesn't sound egotistical, but when you hear those voices, that caliber of artists, when you hear those people singing your songs, you know somewhere deep down inside there's a little you know self-satisfied corner of your soul, no matter how modest you may be or think you are. There's a part of you that says, now I'm a part of history. This is history forever, you know. For sure. Hard. It's hard to explain. It's complicated, but wonderful. So on this podcast, we had uh, 
many months ago, gentleman by the name of Bill Payne from this band called Little Feet. Yes. And um, he told me that um, due to the connection with Fred Tackett, that yeah. um, the first paying gig that Little Feet ever did was a birthday party of yours. Is that correct? Yeah. It was my 30th birth- birthday party, and they set up in my front yard. And uh, I was, uh, I, you know, Freddie. Freddie's like a brother to me. Our Arkansas boy that I heard I heard playing in a nightclub one night and brought him home with me, <laughs> uh, and said, "You're you're with me now." But he he had struck up like a really good friendship with with Lowell George, and I got to know Lowell, and I'm fascinated by his writing. I love other writers. Uh, I just this morning I was listening to Warren Zevon and one. Uh, <laughs> This line poked out at me and said, hell is only half full, you know. (laughs) And I loved Warren. I loved him. And I loved Lowell. He had this wonderful slide lap guitar kind of style. He used to wear a big socket wrench on this middle finger on his left hand. And he used that. It was a perfect slide. And he sung. He sung sung better than most of the singers around him in that day and age. He eventually... He actually taught Bonnie Raitt. He taught Linda Ronstadt. And he taught, gee, you know, a lot of pretty girls. I don't know. I, I can't figure that one out. But he, <laughs> but he taught a lot of pretty girls how to sing and um, or how to sing better. His phrasing was great. He's a wonderful writer. And um, uh, he died, sadly, and just as things were breaking for Little Feet at Warner Brothers Records, he died, uh, uh, sadly, of a heroin overdose. Uh, I love that band. And uh, my favorite album is um, Dixie Chicken. I don't know whether you've heard that one, but... I have. I, yeah, I, I, love I, I love that song about it. And then one night in the lobby of the Commodore Hotel, I chanced to meet a bartender who said he knew her well. All the boys along the bar, they began to sing along. And they and all the guys in the bar knew the song that she had taught him. Yeah, I'm surprised that you bring them up, but, uh, you know, still very much in love with that band and uh, brings back a lot, a lot of memories. I remember that day very clearly. And to tell you the truth, I didn't know it was their first gig, but uh, I found out I found out later. It's nice. It's nice uh, that he would mention that. So how important in our life is music? Can you express that in any form to me? Well, we get married to it. We get buried to it. We dine to it. We jog to it. We meditate to it. We entertain our children with it. Uh, one of the earliest things we do is we teach our children songs and they sing them back to us. We worship to it. We make love to it. There are very few things that we do in life that, if there are any, that aren't accompanied by music. And uh, unfortunately, because America has a rich treasury of music and has a huge bench a huge depth and a lot of great songwriters stretching back 
Um, unfortunately, the role of the songwriter has always been somewhat minimalized. But songs and music are actually what make all the wheels go round in the world of, in the world of entertainment. It's the secret ingredient. Try to make a movie without it. <laughs> try to try to have a Broadway show without it. You know, um, try to have a wedding without it. I mean, try to do anything without it, and you'll find that you'll find that something's missing. And because because there is so much of it, and it's so readily available, and frankly now because it's so cheap, we tend to I think as a society undervalue it. But I believe that music making and the job of creators, and this isn't because I've been on the ASCAP board for 25 years, but I have been. It's, it's been a struggle from day one to make sure that songwriters get paid something approximating a fair amount of money for the use of their music. It's a struggle that goes has gone on year after year after year. I thought I might be on the board for two or three years. 25 years later, I'm saying, I can't leave the board because we're on the wall. You know, we're on the wall. We're watching for the next technological advancement that's going to that's gonna disadvantage songwriters, which seemingly, you know, like they all get around to disadvantaging songwriters in one way or another. Um, and I don't want to go into all the technical details behind that, but streaming has kind of been a disaster. Songwriters... And streaming is the only way, just about the only way we get paid anymore. So we're having to do with, I can't even remember what it is, but the last time I checked what we got was 0.078% per stream, which means that you could have a million selling record and uh, your publisher would send you a check for $2,500. You know, you know, in the old days, we had a million, million selling single that put, that put the bacon on the table. That kept the family going for another year. That paid for the big house, you know, and a couple of cars. A, a, a middle class, a decent middle class lifestyle for a songwriter. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, those days are over. So it's kind of hard to encourage people today when young writers come in and say, what should I do? I usually say, quit. <laughs> Go do Go do something else. Go be an actor. Actors get paid. You know, songwriters don't get paid. Ultimately, the, your, your question was how important music is. Well, it has to be important to you to do it. Because there's ups, there's downs, there's hits, there's misses, there's long dry spells. There's, there's times when you feel like you can't write. The whole condition of the writer is one of being completely open emotionally, which makes a writer, a songwriter, but also authors, any kind of a writer. It makes them vulnerable to so many emotional problems that I can't even describe it. But all those sad songs that break your heart, they were written by people whose hearts were breaking. So, um, yeah, I think it's important. I think it's a calling. I think it I think it'll come back. I think right now that songwriting is in trouble because of rap. Rap is preempting, is sucking up a tremendous amount of the oxygen in the room uh, without contributing a whole lot to songwriting per se. And I'm not knocking, and I don't want any, you know, 
anybody writing you letters and saying, you know, I'm a racist or anything like that. Remember, my first job was at Motown, but I learned to write songs at Motown. And I, I am worried about songs. I think that we have to take care of songs as an art form. Well, folks who are going to see you at the City Winery, uh, April 6th in Boston, uh, can look forward to uh, stories of songs and your music. And I'm so grateful for all that you have given us, that you continue to give us, and that you were on our virtual edition here of Taking a Walk. I'm so appreciative. It, it was a nice walk, very, very nice walk on a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.